everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Alana Matthews is running for Sacramento's district attorney's office. The office is currently held by Anne-Marie Schubert, who has announced her intention to run for attorney general. Today on Everyday Injustice, we will talk with Alana about her candidacy. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Um, so uh, first of all, you know, I always ask this question, but uh, why are you running for district attorney in Sacramento? That's a good question to ask. You know, for me, it's really simple. I, I wanna make the county more safe, more fair and more just. It's, it's as simple as that. Um, for me, safety is a personal priority. I am personally a survivor of violence. And so, um, you know, a lot of the traditional narrative tough on crime policies, um, they're not working to keep communities safe. They're really just driving a narrative that normalizes crime for certain types of communities or crime against certain types of people. And I <laughs> happen to come to come from one of those communities. And, you know, I find myself in that demographic of certain types of people. So I'm not running because the cases that I prosecuted made big headlines. I'm running because of my experience on the front lines, the front lines of gun violence, racial violence, even domestic violence. I'm running because I'm a mom who raised three children, many of those years as a single mother in South Sacramento. I'm running because I've served as a mentor while I was a prosecutor to women who were on parole and at-risk youth because I believe that transforming lives is just as important as protecting them. And so, in this time and at this moment that we are in, we need a change of leadership. It's gonna focus on keeping everybody safe and, and building a system that's fair and just for everybody. So talk to me a little bit about your background and what you're doing right now. Sure, so um, <laughs> I'm from a small town in Northwest Indiana, Gary, Indiana. You know, I grew up in the union household. My dad was a steel mill worker, my mom cleaned rooms in hospital, um, and they just worked really hard to try to provide a better life. Um, and that their hard work sent me to Spelman College, um, the first one in my family to graduate and led me to law school, um, which brought me here to Sacramento. But in between then, um, I married a minister <laughs> and I started a family. So I have several years as a stay-at-home mom, and it was actually 
um, the work that I did, we moved to Sacramento to be urban missionaries. And it's that work that really prompted me to want to take that work to another level and get a law school degree. So me and my three children, I have to give them credit. We all went through law school. And my first job was at the DA's office as an intern. Um, I got my JD in 03 at LLM in 04. And um, the attorney general's office paid for it. So I actually interned for them. And then I um, started my career as a deputy DA here in Sacramento County. So, you know, worked up from intern to juvenile hall, misdemeanor trials, domestic violence, uh, general felonies, violent crimes, um, and even prison crimes. I mean, then in 2012, I was recruited to start the enforcement unit at the California Energy Commission, um, which was great timing for me. Um, unfortunately, I went through a very difficult divorce, um, but it allowed me to have an opportunity to be more present with my children. Um, and so I did well in the enforcement unit, trying to get that off the ground. The following year, Governor Brown appointed me as the public advisor, which is like a public attorney um, official. And so I got to do a lot of um, public policy work, but really it gave me experience as an executive leader driving organizational change. So I got to work on environmental and energy policies and address the disparities and inequities that we often see. Um, and from there, um, I was offered a position as chief consultant for the uh, Joint Legislative Committee on Climate Change. So I got a chance to look at climate policy programs and investments statewide, again, addressing inequities and disparities and working with communities, um, to various stakeholders to build solutions and measurable outcomes. So currently, I'm a law professor at McGeorge School of Law which is great to train kind of like the next generation of legal minds, not just what the law is, but how they should think about the law. Um, what is the intent of the law and how can the law better serve individuals? And I'm also uh, the director of policy resources, um, training and membership at the Prosecutors Alliance of California. So um, I guess I'll start with the Prosecutors Alliance. Um, so for those who don't know, what is the Prosecutors Alliance and what do you do over there? Yeah, it's an organization um, that supports reform-minded prosecutors um, who are just looking at a better way for our criminal justice system to work um, to protect communities and preserve the integrity and human dignity um, of those within the community. So what I do is I focus on policy resources. I, we, we really believe in data-driven solutions. And so um, I help identify what that data is um, and make that available. I do training. So we have just started our third Thursday training series um, where we look at trauma and the impact that it has on crime survivors. So that when you're prosecuting a case, you're not just focused on, okay, how can I get you on the stand to have that big emotional reaction so I can get that conviction? But we wanna be a part of the healing process so that people don't feel exploited. We also wanna focus on how we treat survivors and serve survivors um, to make sure they are actually healing in this process. It shouldn't be very one dimensional. Um, and so those are the sorts of things that I train on and then membership. It's offered to, to anyone who believes that we can improve our criminal justice system. So it was founded by four elected DAs, but it's open and we have members um, not only from across the state, but actually across the country. 
So, um, you know, basically, in some ways, at least, it's, it's kind of the progressive counterweight to the CDAA. Well, when I joined it, I didn't, that's not how it was presented to me. I mean, some people may certainly characterize it that way, but I think the focus of CDAA has been very different. Um, and, you know, as a former prosecutor, the services that we offer um, wasn't in um, the programming that CDAA offered. So such as, you know, having uh, the listening tours with survivors and focusing on that, um, having a, um, a victim advocates resource center so that we can also offer training to those who are working with survivors. Um, and then looking at cutting edge uh, technology and how that could be used to improve our criminal justice system. So I think it's just a different narrative and we focus on what we think is important to make communities more safe. And can you talk a little bit about your experience uh, as a uh, deputy um, district attorney in Sacramento and, and what you learned from that? You know, I think the number one thing that I learned was that the work you do in the community is just as important, if not more important than what you do in the courtroom. Um, when I was a DA, I was somewhat of an outlier because I mentor women on parole. And I think that comes from my background of how I came to Sacramento. I was really working and serving in the community. Um, and I just I just knew in, in, the, in the environment that I grew up, in the community that I grew up, you know, um, crime is, is not, you know, one dimensional. It's not simple. Um, it's very complex and you have to have an approach that addresses all of the complexities. There's not one narrative that, you know, tells the story of all survivors. Um, you have people who, you know, love people who violated them. Um, and so, you know, they may not be um, cooperative, um, you have people who have just grown up without direction or guidance. And so um, understanding that, especially when I think about the women on parole who I mentored, you know, it was just a matter of taking a phone call at two o'clock in the morning and saying, you know, I know they stole your hot plate, but you don't want to go back in and catch a case because you want to get your children back and just be in that support or, or being there when, you know, there's overwhelming frustration because at every turn when you're finally trying to make better decisions. Um, it's so difficult to do that. Um, and I also learned that with working with, um, you know, at-risk youth who, um, instead of just having like some recreational program um, that people say, you know, keep them out of trouble, building a career pathway to a better life. So what my parents were able to work and do for me, I've been involved with the Florin Law Academy. Um, and you know, the impact of having a mentor, the impact of having someone who looks like a lot of the students that I served and sharing with them, I faced the same challenges and struggles that you did and you can become an attorney. It's much more impactful than, you know, 30 days in a home um, taken away from your parents and keeping children on the right path. So again, the work that you do in the community I think is just as important. And that's a lesson I learned at the DA's office and I took with me in, in all of my uh, turns that my career has taken. And, and, you know, while we're on this, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me, uh, especially when we're dealing with women, is how much uh, trauma and victimization 
uh, leads uh, down this kind of path toward incarceration. And it seems like we don't appreciate that connection uh, nearly enough. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, not enough can be said about that. I actually, the very first training that I did um, involved a young lady um, who had actually committed a homicide, but it was because her husband, who when he got out of prison said, it's you or the other person. And that type of complexity, I mean, um, it's certainly, you know, a tragedy when any life is lost. Um, but I think that we can't just be reactive to crime. We have to be proactive. And that's why it's important to um, be present in the community so that you as a district attorney, and that's what I plan to do, you are a part of those intervention strategies. You are a part of those prevention strategies so that you are helping women who find themselves. Um, and you're not driving the narrative that just because you're in a domestic violence relationship, you caused it. Um, you know, my own personal experience, you know, I had not wanted to date a person and they began to stalk me. Um, and they had this delusion in their mind that they were still together. And for so many women, they did not do anything. Um, and, well, all women, it's not some women, they didn't do anything at all. And so we don't wanna just drive that narrative. We have to be a part of the conversation at the intervention and the prevention stage. Um, I was very fortunate to be a volunteer attorney for a domestic violence program here in Sacramento called WEAVE. And it was such a great experience, not only with the legal services that they offer, the counseling services they offer, but just the relationship among other women who understand and the time that they take to build the trust. And so I think the DA's office and all of, you know, uh, prosecutor's office, that's a part of serving survivors um, and understanding the, the levels and the complexity of their trauma so that you meet them at a place where you're seeking healing and not just seeking, you know, an out, a, a specific outcome. So um, what are your concerns about uh, the current DA's office? You know, my concerns are really um, stemming from what I'm hearing from so many people around the county. Um, and that's just that they don't feel safe. Um, they don't believe our criminal justice system is fair and they don't believe that justice is for them. There is almost an entire, um, you know, demographic class group of people who just feel that they are left unprotected, whether it's with human trafficking or, um, you know, exploited for other purposes. Um, but certainly one of the more uh, profound ways where people feel there is not fairness is with accountability for police misconduct. Um, There's an article in a, in a local paper that really revealed details of an officer um, involved shooting where, you know, the officers tried to run over um, this particular person twice and then immediately shot him. And the police, Sacramento Police Department acted immediately and holding those officers accountable. Um, but there was no accountability in the DA's office. So that's something that needs to be addressed. And it's notice I said accountability for police misconduct. It's not 
um, you know, a statement against police officers. I worked with them for almost a decade in the office and I value the important work that they do. But the implications when incidents like that happens is that it erodes the trust in the entire system. So when we have really bad actors um, that commit really violent and serious crimes, the community is not going to speak up because they don't know if they're on this side of the criminal justice system or the other side. Like we have two different systems um, and that just erodes the trust. And, and I think that's not just a sentiment of um, you know, the community, but I, I think it's shared by some officers as well. When they've worked up a case, they put in time and effort, but there seems to be two different standards of what charges get filed on. So I think those are two areas um, where we can improve and they may not be the most, you know, um, uh, you know um, non-controversial talking points, but it's something we have to address. We need to address if we really truly wanna make Sacramento County more safe and we want it to be a, a more fair and just legal system. Because at the end of the day, that's all everybody wants. It's just a fair and legal, a fair and just legal system. Um, you know, people commit crimes, they ought to be held accountable, but we can't have two different systems. Yeah, and so, you know, you were referring to the Joseph Mann case, um, which, uh, you know, if you watch that video, which I of course have uh, a number of times, you know, not only are they trying to run over the guy, but they're going, hit that guy, hit that guy. Um, and, and then they get out and they run him down and they shoot him. Um, and, you know, the DA's office declined to uh, file criminal charges in that case, um, which, you know, to most, um, you know, progressive minded people and non-lawyers is kind of nonsensical. Like, how can you clearly have animus and be motivated uh, to kill a guy and, and not face criminal charges. But you know, I think it goes beyond, I, I wouldn't even put the label progressive-minded people. I think anybody who is concerned about safety and fairness and justice, you know, they look at that and, and they feel that, you know, that, that doesn't make sense. Um, so, I mean, we certainly live in a world where people have labels, but I think that for me, um, I, I recognize that sometimes that's one of the, the ways that divides us. And if we are really going to have a community that's more safe, more fair, more just, we've got to come together. So I don't necessarily lead with any ideology or identity. I just lead with my values because everybody wants to be safe. Everybody wants to be fair. And everybody wants justice. So how do you um, evaluate, you know, the other high profile Stefan Clark um, killing? I mean, you know, a as a prosecutor, what are you looking at? Well, I don't know all the facts of that case, um, but what, what I will say was more important about the um, Stefan Clark case, and I've had a conversation with his brother, is that whatever the decision the district attorney makes, um, when you decide to go public with that, first of all, you need to talk to the family. And second of all, you don't spend an hour or more, you know, talking about the person's character, like killing them again, all over again. Um, you just have to be mindful. Um, and, and I will also say that I think that that is instructive 
of the need for prosecutorial independence. Um, I've stated publicly, I'm not taking money from police unions, associations. Um, and that's not because I don't support the hard work of our police officers. It's entirely the opposite. Because as DA, having to make that decision, you want the community to believe and trust that you're making it on the merits and not because you're getting a political contribution or you're on their payroll in some other type of way. And so I think that's the most valuable lesson to learn moving forward and where the DA's office and the leadership, um, the new leadership should be. Um, so, you know, and I understand you're early in your campaign, but, but what issues are you really focused on as you move forward here? You know, what I'm moving forward on is based on what I learned as public advisor at the California Energy Commission. And that's listen to the community. You know, it seems like a good talking point to say, you know, let's build bridges or let's, you know, bring the disconnect. But if you don't even know what it is, what's really impacting, um, you know, citizens of Sacramento County's everyday lives, right? So because I'm in the early stages, <laughs> you know, I don't have some fancy poll or I don't have, you know, big endorsements or, you know, people guiding that. So I'm actually going to the community. I'm talking to community members, business owners, elected leaders and saying, what are the types of things that you're hearing? And of course, you know, um, the, the, the growing issue of those who are unhoused in our community, uh, the substance abuse and mental illness that we also see in our community and understanding we, we can't criminalize that. We can't incarcerate our way out of those issues. We have to have common sense reforms that allows uh, those individuals to get the services and the treatments that they need. Um, and, and I'm really being responsive and being led by what the community um, is, is, is expressing the sentiment of, of what makes them feel unsafe or what are the issues of unfairness that they're facing. Um, so how would you address issues of concern like mass incarceration? Well, we see, I mean, the war on drugs taught us um, that you know we're we're doing more harm in our communities. One of the things that the Prosecutors Alliance does that I that I alluded to is we focus on data driven solutions, and the data shows that you know longer sentences do not keep communities safe. In fact, they do just the opposite. And so we have to find other ways where we are still holding offenders accountable, but we're focused more on rehabilitation which equates to justice than punishment. So what I think about you know, incarceration is certainly people who commit very violent um, and you know, serious crimes need to be separated from society. But we also have to address the root causes of crime to reduce crime. And mass incarceration has not been an effective tool in reducing crime. So we need to find out what is and focus on that. Um, and, and what are your thoughts on uh, bail reform? Again, um, you know, we actually just had a California Supreme Court case that talked about, uh, you know, the constitutionality of locking someone in jail based on their ability to pay. So I certainly support, um, you know, 
reform that, you know, uh, stance with that, but it also has to, you know, prioritize uh, safety, public safety. So I think having that as a priority and not a person's ability to pay is the direction we need to go in. Um, and then, you know, kind of another big issue in the system right now is that if you look at the system uh, kind of from the moment of police contact, and, and you could argue before that, but let, we'll start with at, at the moment of police contact, uh, black and brown people more likely to be contacted by police, more likely to be arrested by police, more likely to be prosecuted, more likely to be convicted, uh, more likely to be held in custody pre-trial, um, and then, you know, at the back end, more likely uh, to uh, serve prison time. And when they do serve prison time, it's longer. Um, where do we break that cycle? Uh, what would you do as a district attorney uh, to help address racial inequities? Well, I would follow the law. And there's a new law called the California Racial Justice Act that went into effect on January 1st of this year. And the purpose of that law is to achieve eliminating racial bias out of our criminal justice system. And it starts from the point of contact. Um, and I actually train on that, that law to help prosecutors understand how you look at that. I mean, some of the law involves data collection, um, so I think the DA's office should be proactive in looking at the data and who they charge, how they charge. Um, and they also have to be um, proactive in sentencing um, and looking at that data as well. Um, not only because it's the right thing to do, but it's now the law. So we, we have to do that. Um, and I also think, you know, in, in a much broader um, view of, of looking at racial equities. And that's what I think I bring um, to this office um, if I'm elected is, you know, having worked in executive leadership, um, working at the Capitol, being a public policy expert, looking at this more broadly is how are we devoting our resources, you know, and looking at addressing racial inequities means when you have officers in certain communities, what are the types of crimes that they are arresting? What are the types of crimes that we are prosecuting? Um, and looking at how many, because that takes away the resources, not only of the prosecutors, but also the police department where they could be focusing on more serious and violent crimes that are hurting communities and, and keeping victims, survivors, not keeping them safe at all. So when we look at that, I mean, that data is not just about racial justice, it's actually about safety. It's actually about better use of resources. It's actually about fiscal responsibility. Um, so I think those implications are far reaching just beyond um, what racial inequities are, but certainly, you know, as a person of color <laughs> um, and, and, and being allied with so many other people of color, but I think even with income level, I think you can see a lot of those correlations as well with, you know, um, people in the lowest socioeconomic status. So we definitely have to address that, not just as a moral or social issue, but it's also a fiscal and legal one as well. And, and, and speaking of which, um, you know, one of the shocking stats, um, and I, I haven't looked at it lately, and so may have changed slightly, but uh, the percentage of district attorney's offices that are led by 
uh, either women or, uh, and especially people of color is extraordinarily low. I, I mean, I, I think it was less than 10%. Um, uh, so, so how does that perspective help guide you in, in terms of looking to change the way things are done? Um, you know, <laughs> I don't think it's guiding. I think it's just informative, but that's the story of my life. I've been undervalued, underestimated, and told I'm not qualified in so many different instances of my life. And I've proved them wrong um, every single time. But again, I'm driven by my values. I'm driven by seeing a need for change and standing in the gap, rising to the occasion to bring the change. Um, so the statistics, um, while they're there, and I know that they're there, um, you know, I'm a graduate of Spelman College, so I'm inspired by what my Spelman sister Stacey Abrams has done. And, you know, I'm also a part of a sorority that I happen to share with our Madam Vice President. And so, um, you know, there are barriers, but they can definitely be broken. And I, I think this office needs someone who is qualified, committed, and courageous. And knowing that I'm all three of those, statistics don't phase me at all. Yeah, and, and, and my question wasn't quite to that. It was more to the effect of, uh, you know, and I, I guess I'll be a little blunt, you know, a lot of white males kind of discount the role of race. At least they did up until, you know, maybe the last year or two when all of a sudden everybody seemed to find religion on this issue. But, uh, you know, and, and there just seems to be a, a disconnect that you go into DA's offices and I go into courtrooms all in a, uh, many different counties across the state and you see the same thing over and over again. You see black and brown people that are uh, facing charges and you see white prosecutors, most of them white males. And, and the, the connection is, is important because um, a lot of white males do not empathize with uh, people of color and, and the circumstances that people of color have uh, grown up in and are dealing with. I just have to say that I have to be guided um, by my experience. And while I understand that narrative and that reality, it's not the definitive one for me. And so um, you're, you're absolutely right. There are lots of people who are not empathetic um, and any demographic can face uh, that way. Um, but I wanna focus on what needs to change um, and how we change it. Um, and so I think just by running, I'm challenging that narrative and I'm giving other people the opportunity to redefine that narrative as well. Um, <laughs> and I also wanted to ask you, so, you know, one of the, I guess, buzzwords for lack of a better term uh, that we've been hearing lately is this notion of declination, uh, the idea that uh, certain crimes uh, really shouldn't be prosecuted. I happen to believe that there are whole classes of crimes that would be better dealt with uh, outside of the criminal legal system. Uh, what would your office look like with regard to that? Yeah, my office would certainly want us to prioritize. And again, you know, appreciating the hard work that police officers do, we want to direct their attention and focus to more serious crimes. And the same thing with our prosecutors in our office, uh, you know, um, certainly 
we should be focusing on, you know, more serious crimes like sexual assaults, um, homicides, gun violence. Um, and I think that usually in the conversation about declinations, we're, you know, looking at things like loitering or, um, you know, crimes that involve, uh, you know, people who may have a very low uh, socioeconomic status. But my office will also be sensitive to the implications it has for criminalization of gender identity. Um, and that brings up, um, you know, the disproportionate amount of contacts and encounters with trans women, particularly trans women of color. So, you know, whereas I may just be walking down the street and no one would think anything of it, or you may be walking down the street, but a trans woman of color sometimes finds herself, um, you know, being questioned or accused of loitering for prostitution. So there are a lot of other things that I'll just take a moment to say on the 3rd August and um, the third Thursday in August, we will be having a training on misdemeanor uh, declinations and providing the data and research and showing what that actually has shown. Glad to have one of the leading experts in this area, um, Anna Harvey from um, New York uh, University. So hopefully you can join and get a little bit more insight. I would, I would be uh, honored to uh be able to join in uh, to that. And I uh, believe I've read uh, their research paper that came out recently on uh, the impact of uh, declination on misdemeanor charges. Yes. Um, and, and so kind of uh, the final policy area, you know, and I, I see this as really the nexus between uh, the rights of uh, victims and the rights of the accused, you know, one, big problem in the system as we know it now is that, you know, victims are, are not necessarily helped just by throwing the book at uh, their, uh, their, uh, their offenders. Uh, whereas, um, you know, the offenders often uh, can be punished and never have to really take responsibility for what they did. Um, and so I, I'm a big advocate of restorative justice because restorative justice focuses on what are the needs of the victim and, uh, and also uh, creates a mechanism to actually hold uh, the uh, offender accountable uh, for what they did to help them understand the harms that they caused and to figure out ways to rectify those harms. Um, so how would your office uh, look at restorative justice practices? I would fully embrace having a restorative justice program and you would see one. I was actually fortunate when I got my LLM at McGeorge, um, I did my thesis on restorative justice program. Um, and I actually studied the Gatacha courts of Rwanda when um, that country went through a reconciliation, a national reconciliation of uh, you know, people who had could, committed the most horrific crimes and seeing the outcomes um, and not only you know, being survivor-centered and accountability-based, but really driving public safety. Um, and I think in our office, it would also serve an additional purpose of being racially informed um, because that's a big part of um, restorative justice and, and taking into account everyone's lived experience. So I certainly would uh, support that. And I think Sacramento, there's a lot of people in Sacramento County who would like to see that as well. Um, and then as 
as we wrap up here, are there other issues that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about briefly? I'm sure there are a lot, but. <laughs> well, I'm still, I'm still in listening mode. You know, I am listening and talking to uh, members of the community, business owners, elected leaders, really trying to learn what are the most public safety driven um, issues that, that they are concerned about. I think being the district attorney, you know, when you walk in the court, you say, for the people. Um, and if I'm going to serve effectively the people of Sacramento County, I want to know um, what's the priority for them. Great. Well, I want to thank you for coming on our show and uh, sharing a, a bit about your background and your candidacy for district attorney. Thank you for having me. This has been Everyday Injustice. That was Alana Matthews. She's a candidate for DA in Sacramento. It's a race that's coming up next year. Uh, this has been David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.